1 Corinthians chapter 13. There's a confused understanding in the church in Corinth. They're confused about what it means to be spiritual. And if you've walked with us through this book for some time, you recognize there's also an undercurrent of pride in the church. And it's caused some people to see themselves over and above others. Therefore, to treat other people within the church with with lesser dignity. And now we come to this, this great love chapter in the Bible. Most pastors will tell you it's usually harder to preach a passage like this that everybody's heard in lots of different contexts than it is to preach something that's really obscure. And I feel the weight of that. And the reason that I feel that weight is because most people come to a passage like 1 Corinthians 13 and they have all kinds of assumptions that they've already placed about it. I'm not saying that's where you are today, but I am saying this, that if we take the passage out of context, it's still rich. But if we take the passage in context, then it is far more full and far more beautiful. Let's pick up at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the very last verse. Paul, having talked about the spiritual gifts on display in Corinth, says in verse 31, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith... Hope and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Our Father, we need the help of your Holy Spirit that we might understand the beauty of the passage that you have laid before us. And I pray for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit so that your people would have ears to hear what your Spirit would say. And finally, Father, you know that I'm a wretched and sinful crooked stick. I ask that you would be willing to use such a stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Somewhere along the way, you've, you've heard a, a sermon about this. You've heard philia, brotherly love. You've heard eros, romantic love. You've heard agape or agape. 
And that love is some sort of a a self-giving, higher love. Greek scholars tell us that prior to the writing of the New Testament, that that the use of the word agape was, was almost entirely rare in Greek literature. In fact, outside of the New Testament, love, when it's referred to, is almost always comparative. I I like chocolate ice cream. I love peanut butter and chocolate ice cream. I like Sam and Will and Charlie. I love Susan. And so in that way, eros eros and philea are simply the, the highest feelings that somebody can possess, but they're still feelings. And so... After the crucifixion and the resurrection, Christians latched on to this word, agape. So much so that it appears 116 times in the New Testament. It appears 75 times just on the pen of the Apostle Paul. And that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because agape is the only way to explain the love of Jesus on a cross. A love that seeks nothing but the good of the one to whom it is directed. A love that's entirely others-centered. So much so that it could only proceed from God. A love that is directed squarely at those who are unworthy. A love that proceeds primarily from the character of the giver. And it says virtually nothing about the one who receives it. Brotherly love starts... With a different question entirely. I wonder if this person could be a good friend to me. Eros love starts from a different question entirely. I wonder if this person would be a good spouse, a good girlfriend, a good boyfriend. Agape begins with this question. That is, what can I do for the good of the other? Pictured on the cross. Love poured out on the unworthy with no hope that the giver will receive anything in return. That's the way the Bible talks about love. And you hear it in passages like Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates His own love, His own agape for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, in this is agape, not that we have agape God, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Is it too much to hope then, given what this text says, that God's people might learn to manifest this kind of love toward others? That's the precise reason. That Paul places this love chapter in the midst of a discussion about spiritual gifts. How do I use my spiritual gifts in in, in a sense that would be honoring to God for the whole church? The Bible says this kind of love can, in fact, be manifest in you and me. But it's only manifest in you and me as you and I begin to comprehend more fully what it is that this kind of love has been poured into us. That's why Paul calls this a a still more excellent way because it's not an external manifestation. It's not roses on the front porch. It's not chocolates. It's an internal transformation which gives. So Paul says, take off your reading glasses of pride. Take off your glasses of self. Take off your glasses of how useful you might possibly be to the church. And put on the lenses of God's love. The text before us 
teaches us to serve Christ and his church through a lens of love. I want to break the passage down into three parts. If you're an outline follower, you're going to notice that I mangled the outline. I did it on purpose. We're going to cover today the gain of nothing and then simply the true and the transient. There's just too much for me to cover. You can scratch out maturity and perspective. That might show up in your bulletin next week. Just want to slow down. Take a look at the text. Let's start with the gain of nothing. The first three verses are hypothetical and hyperbolic. Hypothetical. Let's just imagine this scenario. Hyperbolic. Imagine I could possess every spiritual gift that would impress anyone. And if you lack love, you're missing the still more excellent way. The only God-honoring way for you and I to use the spiritual graces that God has given to us is to use our gifts in a spirit of love towards the whole body of Christ. It's a verse that is actually meant to sober the spiritually prideful. A hypothetical scenario with hyperbolic language. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging Symbol. He starts with the gift of tongues because, well, that's the gift that those people in Corinth valued the most. And they overly prized this one spiritual gift. It's a gift that was present at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. It was a gift that was given by God's Holy Spirit in order to spread the gospel to people who spoke different languages. So suppose I could speak with all of the eloquence of every language on the face of the entire earth. Better than that. Let's suppose I could speak the the, the language of angels. But I do not have any heart of others-centered love. What would I be? Well, I would make noise. But there would be no melody. Like the bronze that the city of Corinth was so famous for. You just flatten out a sheet of that bronze and you hang it from ropes. And then you bang that bronze with a mallet. Many of you are old enough to remember the gong show in the mid-70s. A show to search out amateur talent. And how do you get a contestant off of the stage on the gong show? You, you, You bang This horrible sounding metal, no tune, just noise. Noise enough to silence every other sound or the clang of a cymbal. Can you imagine what that looks like in the church when others are silenced? Friends, if you have a spiritual gift that is received in the church as an unending reverberation of self-important, self-affirming intrusion. And then no one gains from that gift, least of all you. Now the other gifts the Corinthians believed and cared most about are found in verse 2. If I had prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now many... Of the Christians at the church in Corinth prize power 
And so from all of their pagan past, they really want to be recognized as having the ability to understand mysteries and, and, and reveal themselves as people who possess something that others don't have, a wisdom and a knowledge. Some of it has yet to be sanctified into good and useful ways in the church. Let's say I have all that. But I lack love. Does, does Paul say then that I wouldn't be very useful does Paul say, well, then my, then my gift would be wasted? No, he says, I am nothing. So even if I get all the secret revelations that God would ever give, if I understood everything about God's plan of salvation, if I had all knowledge, meaning the intellectual capacity to, to, to hold on and understand truth, or if I had all faith, let's dream even bigger, if I had the greatest degree of trust in God to do the greatest possible wonders, even like move a mountain. If I lack love, I am nothing. So it is that your willingness to pursue love in your relationships seems to be, according to the scripture, far more important than everything that you know about God. Without love, Paul says, it would, be, it would be useless for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus. Useless to minister to people who have questions. How tempting it is. To be sure to try to fill our brains with all this knowledge of Reformed theology. How tempting to be able to refute people who have differences of opinion from us. How tempting it is to, to feel powerful when I defend my position how tempting to think that knowledge about Christ is the same as love for Christ or love for his people. These precious sheep for which he died. So Paul says, if you lack the capacity to yield your powers, your knowledge or your faith from a heart of love. Then it is as if you had none of those gifts at all. And to that discernment and knowledge and faith, he adds actions. Look at verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Auburn is a great place for this. You're going to encounter people who have done or are doing great things for Jesus. Something big, maybe they're planting a church for Jesus. Maybe they've started a ministry for Jesus. They've gone on foreign missions for Jesus. They've done local missions for Jesus. They've fed and clothed the poor. They've, they've dug wells in the name of Jesus. They've taught vacation Bible school to children who haven't had showers. And isn't it tempting in Auburn to do all of this stuff in a very Western American individualistic way? Or as Paul says, perhaps they've been really generous in their giving to Jesus. Or the most hyperbolic comment possible. Let's say you would even be willing to die for someone else. And so the Bible says that your best thoughts and your best deeds are filthy rags unless they flow through this lens of love. As a gift offered back 
to the ultimate others-centered giver of love. What if Jesus is the audience instead of those people that are sitting in front of you? What if Jesus is the audience instead of those who are beside you? I thought 1 Corinthians 13 was going to be poetry about love. And I thought I was going to get Valentine's Day. I thought I was going to get Hallmark and, and Cupid and Hearts. But in context, what I find is the text takes me so quickly to the end of myself. And it says, unless you embrace my love for you as it is. You can never truly turn and love others as I intend. Unless you grasp my love as generous to the stingy, as humble to the prideful, as pure to the already defiled, as lavish to the unworthy, then you can have all the best doctrine. You can have all the best displays of service. And yet if I haven't learned to reflect the love that has been poured into me, then I will be noise and I'll gain nothing. Precious friends who served this week on a local mission project. Or for those of you who serve your family and friends in other regular ways. The Bible says that others-centered love toward that object is far more important than gifts and talents. And if you read that at first, you might go, well, that's very troubling because I give a lot. It's actually intended to be quite comforting, you see. Because when you find that your gifts and your talents come to an end, or when you find that your gifts and talents fail to receive the thanks that they really do deserve, Or even the commendation that should be given to them. When your gifts and talents fail to accomplish the very purpose for which you laid them out there. And gave so much. And nobody noticed. It's still possible. To serve Christ and His church through a lens of love. Because love is evidently the most essential ingredient, a love reflected to others from those who received it from Jesus. Now we come to the true. This is found in verses 4 through 7. The true description of love is found here. uh, True in that it's the precise description of the nature of God's love. And it echoes from the heart of God for His people and it's exemplified in Christ. Now what makes this text so profound is that it begins not in our own personal expressions of love. And yet 99% of the way you've ever heard this passage, it is about my expression of love to other people. This begins in a different place with the author and creator of love. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. So you see that God's love contains a, a passive component and an active component. The Bible says God suffers long over sinners. I am really thankful He does. He has suffered long over me. He waits with forbearance, not willing that any should perish. But then He says He's also actively kind to us. 
in thousands of displays of mercy, God does not give us precisely what our sins deserve in the moment that they deserve it. Those two words which describe God's love are are, are now followed by seven verbs that explain what love is not. And these these seven will make perfect sense to you if if you've walked with us just a little while in this book. Because it's as if the Apostle Paul goes to the file labeled Corinth and he pulls it out and he begins to, to document their failures to love. Love does not envy or boast. Do you remember the divisions in this church? Those would be vanquished if God's love was simply reflected in the hearts of His children. Love is never bothered by the success of someone else. And then he uses this term which basically means like windbag. Love doesn't blow hot air. It doesn't brag about its own success. One writer says it's not possible to boast and love at the same time. Because boasting always wants to think highly of self. Whereas love thinks highly of others. Verse 4 again, it's not arrogant or rude. Other translations will use the word pride in place of of arrogant. I I loved what Australian scholar Leon Morris said. He said there there are many ways of manifesting pride. But love is incompatible with all of them. Love is concerned to give itself, not to assert itself. And you and I have been taught how important it is to assert ourselves because no one's going to respect you unless you do. Biblically speaking, pride is arrogant. How do you use the word pride? How does our culture use the word pride? Is that arrogant self-assertion compatible with God's love? Verse 5. Love does not insist on its own way. Other translations say love is not self-seeking. It's the very thing that Paul addressed in chapter 10. There the issue is eating and drinking. Well, I'm free to eat whatever I want. I'm free to drink whatever I want. And Paul said, yes, you are. But if you eat and you drink for the glory of God instead of insisting on your own way, then you will seek the advantage and the good of others. In a very real sense, this is the essence of a godlike love. It is not enamored with self-gain or self-worth or self-justification or self-expression. It is enamored with the good of others. I am so thankful that God is not self-seeking. Because I needed a God who would seek Someone who is quite self-seeking. And so did you. A God who would be others seeking. Love is also not irritable or resentful. This is a divine forbearance. Love does not keep a tally of the ways that it has been wronged. And it doesn't harbor those wrongs with a long-standing record. Some of you come from families that majored in this. Where holding resentment is mistaken for a false sense of power. And so you learn to keep a hidden record 
of all the ways that you've been wronged. And you learn to pout. And you learn to harbor bitterness. I wonder if you have learned to rejoice that God did not do that to you. And would His true example of love loosen the shackle of resentment that hangs from your neck? For you have been loved this way. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It's not obvious at first. This is really two sides of the exact same coin. It's the the nature of our wicked hearts to stand at a distance and to rejoice when someone else, another person over there, gets what I think they deserved. Or when the chickens come home to roost. Or when they made their bed and now they get to lie in it. There's no small part that delights to see that happen. God's love doesn't have that sinful capacity. And if, as Peter says, God is not willing that any should perish, then why would we, who reflect that same love, gloat when someone else falls? The other side of the coin, love rejoices at the truth. In other words, love rejoices when slander and spin are silenced, when truth comes to light. If you're trying to follow Christ in a factious world where truth seems to be less important than being loud, then you will know that our world pawns agendas. First and foremost, but love and truth are biblically inseparable. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You've been told that romantic love is the highest human ideal of our existence. And so over 15 years of doing premarital counseling, most couples who sit in front of me comprehend romantic love. I don't really have to teach them that. I suspect when I was younger, I was overly inclined to exalt the wonder of romantic love. And I I do want to be clear, romantic love is a thing. And it's not a weak or flimsy or frail thing. It is true. But today when I work with couples in marital or premarital counseling, it is so obvious that the biggest help that I can give them is to teach them to rethink love from, from feelings to action. From keeping a record of what I get out of the relationship to thinking only of what I give. From Eros to Agape. And so here's a verse that collapses the romantic comedies that you love and the books that you so adore. And you notice here there's four phrases. And the first and the fourth deal with present circumstances. It says love bears and endures all things. And the, the verb that it, that's at the end of that sentence is, is hypomeno. I, I still remember that. It's like one of those words. Meno comes up a lot in the Greek language. And the, the verb basically means remain. And so here, one writer says that this is not a, a patient, resigned acquiescence. But instead, this is a love that is active and positive, And it is fortified in its endurance like a soldier who in the thick of battle remains undeterred. 
He goes on to say God's love is not overwhelmed. But it manfully plays the part in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. That's totally different than how you feel today. The second and third phrases go together as well. Love believes all things and hopes all things. And so this is a future look, but it is not a blind optimism. The true love of God displayed in Christ refuses to let the failure of losing someone's soul have the last word. This is the only way to possibly describe the tenacious certainty of Almighty God who says every time, I will never fail to triumph and gain the heart of my child. How much do you need a love like this? A God who is so patient and consistent and hopeful that He would be willing to endure your stiff neck and to bend your stiff arm. The true. This is a precise description of the nature of God's love towards sinners. Now let's look at the transient. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And so Paul puts spiritual gifts and talents and a false sense of spirituality in their proper perspective. In contrast to the right reflection of the character of God. He says, God's love perfected in you by the power of the Holy Spirit has no end. In the first century, God gave a gift of prophecy to His Church, so that truth would be revealed to his people. And then he also gave the capacity for people to understand a multitude of known languages. And in addition to that, there was the ability to interpret those known languages so that that truth could be spread. But that condition is transient. That period of time is short-lived. And here's why. It's not because I believe that the Holy Spirit has somehow stopped delivering gifts. It is because what the text says and what it means is this. He says, put love in perspective with all the other gifts. When you don't see God face to face, it is necessary for God to reveal Himself through the prophetic word. But one day you will see Him face to face. And on that day... You aren't going to need prophecy anymore. On that day, you are not going to need tongues or any extra gift of knowledge. On that day, you will see Christ face to face and you will know the living God. So that all these partial glimpses that you've had on this earth will be swallowed up with the perfection of seeing God clearly. When you don't see God face to face. And you don't understand all things. It's necessary for God to give to His people a gift of knowledge so that that they who would not otherwise know Him might know Him. They might understand His plan of redemption. And moreover, as the Gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world, it's essential that the Lord should gift His people with the ability to understand languages that they did not know. It was essential 
That he gift his church with the capacity to interpret those languages so that this gospel would spread forth. And Paul makes one single point clear. All those gifts are incredibly useful for a season. The way a learner's permit is useful between the time of 15 and 16 to help you learn to drive. Who wants a learner's permit when you turn 16? Likewise, who wants a photograph of your precious loved one when you can see that precious loved one face to face? So God has the prerogative to gift His church with precisely what they need for the specific time period in which they exist. And instead of directing our attentions and our own personal talents that God could potentially use if He just would do it. If only I had a chance. Instead of directing my attention toward the grand things that I want to accomplish for God. For Jesus Christ poured out. God calls you to something far greater. He says you display my character of love. In your family. In the church. In the world. Everything here is transient. Therefore, what you know about God, what you do for God, it's secondary to reflecting this love of God. What you do for a career, or how you're gifted, how you're willing to help the church, if somebody would just notice you, it's secondary to reflecting His love. What if we state this another way? And I believe this is the note that Paul wants to strike. Everything you know, everything you do, every job, every spiritual gift you have is enhanced, is beautified, is endowed with not just temporal significance, but eternal significance by simply reflecting the love that you have already received through Jesus Christ. And so our passage ends where it begins. It tells us to serve Christ and His church through this lens of love. Let's pray.